You'll turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6 as we continue our way through the book of Nehemiah and see what God would have to say us, say to us through this wonderful Old Testament book. As you do so, let me just say again what a joy it was to be able to be away, and um, you didn't know that I was away this last week with my son Peter on a little boy's trip. We met my father and my brother and my nephew, who's the same age as my oldest, and uh, we went up to the northern part of the United States and did a week of of fishing and uh, had a wonderful time, a wonderful time to get away. Came back late last night, Uh, but let me say, as great as that was, there's nothing greater than to come home, come home to obviously my family, but to come home to this family the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I delight with you to be back. Nehemiah chapter 6, we'll be reading the first nine verses. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Aram and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakarvim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanbalt for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem also says it. That's you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you say have been done. For you're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Please be seated. On September 30, 1938, Britain, France, Italy, and Germany signed the Munich Agreement, an agreement that... Germany would not invade other countries because they already had. They had invaded Czechoslovakia. And for them signing this pact, they would be able to gain some of this land that they had seized. And so this treaty was signed, as you know, by Chamberlain of Britain, Mussolini of Italy, and of course, Hitler of Germany. It was lauded as a wonderful step of peace. In fact, Chamberlain came back to England and called it peace for our time. And it was seen as diverting certain war and providing a path, a a way of peace. And yet, as you know, it was all a lie. Hitler had no intention of keeping this pact. In fact, he did so just as a cover to buy more time so as to build up his armies and arrange them accordingly. In fact, Hitler is quoted saying after the meeting, speaking to some of his advisors, saying, gentlemen, this has been my first international conference, 
and I can assure you that it will be my last. And of Chamberlain, he said, if ever that silly old man comes interfering here again in his umbrella, I will kick him downstairs and jump on his stomach in front of all the photographers. And of his opposition, he said, our enemies are men below average, not men of action, not masters. They are little worms, Hitler said. It was, was seen at Munich. And so, less than a year after signing the agreement, Hitler and Nazi Germany invaded Poland, which began, as you know, World War II. And this demonstrates the principle that there is no compromise with someone whose end goal is ultimately world domination. And as we look at this passage, we see something very similar. We see Israel's enemies rearing their ugly head once again, this time in a more subtle and conniving way. And yet their purpose is still the same. It is to stop the work. It is to delay it. It is to deter it in any way they can because they want the city and the people ultimately to be in desolation and in destruction because as such they are able to keep the power that they so long and desire for. And so even though we read this desire for them to speak and for there to be peace, they have no desire for peace. They have no desire for the well-being of Israel. And as a result, we see that Nehemiah essentially has no time for them, no false notions that there can be some middle ground, some compromise. No, there is no compromise in Nehemiah or in the work that he is called to do. And there's a lesson for us to learn there because we have similar enemies. We have enemies of the flesh and of the world and of the devil, and they have no desire for peace. They have no desire for prosperity, for you or for the things of God. No, their desire is complete and total domination. And so we need to recognize that. We need to recognize their schemes and their cunning and deceitful ways. And even though their purpose is not overt, there can be no compromise. There can be no middle ground. If we're going to live for God, if we're going to do his work. And so for the next two weeks, I want us to look at these schemes and the right response. And so we will look at the first point today, and Lord willing, come back, and you'll hear the second point. The first is the devious truths that is made, and second is the deceitful teaching that is brought forth. First, this devious truths. As we read in our passage, we see that what Nehemiah came to do, he is beginning to accomplish. The entirety of the walls now have been built. He says that there is no gaps, no breach in it. And the only thing that is left is now to set up the gates. And as a result, the needed protection for the city will be all set. And it's really quite the accomplishment. And it has taken every ounce of leadership for this to happen. As we've read, there was difficulties without, with Sanballat and Tobiah, and we read of them again today. We read of difficulties within, 
the people being discouraged and believing that they couldn't do the work, believing the lies. Last week, chapter 5, Pastor Myers demonstrated the problems of the Israelites oppressing their own. In other words, this wasn't an easy project. This wasn't an easy task. No, there were problems. In fact, there were problems every day. And that is true of life, isn't it? We live in a fallen world. We live in a world of problems. This is true for us all. But this is especially true if you desire to live a godly life. If you desire to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, then you will face opposition. You will swim upstream. The direction of the world is not in the way of righteousness or godliness, but against it. And let's admit it, oftentimes it's wearisome, isn't it? It's wearisome for ourselves. And it's wearisome for those that you are trying to lead. If you're trying to lead your family in godliness, or a church, or especially a community, we are streaming, we're swimming upstream. And we see that with Nehemiah, don't we? And you wouldn't blame Nehemiah if he said, all of you people and all of your problems every single day, you're coming with problems and more and more and more. But what we see with Nehemiah is a wonderful lesson of leadership and of the Christian life. What we see with Nehemiah is one who is deeply reliant upon the Lord and others. See, if he tried to take this task upon himself, it would be too much. It would be overwhelming. Yes, Nehemiah was trying to lead the people. He was trying to lead them in the way of righteousness and in the works of the Lord. But he also recognized a very important lesson. And the very important lesson was this, that he was not their savior. He could not ultimately rescue them. Nehemiah did not have a savior complex. And we need to learn that lesson as well. And oftentimes when we become tired, when we become overwhelmed, when we become wearisome in life, but especially in the Christian life or in the work that the Lord calls us to do, we must remind ourselves and remind each other of this truth that we are not saviors. We ultimately cannot save. And so when you feel that frustration with your children, perhaps, or with others, or even yourself. You must know that the Lord is allowing this frustration for us to come to the end of ourselves. To have us realize that we ultimately can't bring the change that we want. Only He can. And we need to rely upon Him. And so, when we feel that frustration, and who doesn't, right? What should that be a sign of? That should be a sign that we should go to the Lord to be dependent upon His Spirit, to be dependent upon His work, to not give up, to not be discouraged, to 
continue to do what he is commanded, to continue to do his work, to be reliant upon his means that he is given, but also be reliant upon his timing and his work. Otherwise, we won't make it. Otherwise, we will crash and burn. But we must bring it to the Lord constantly and continually. And I tell you what happens when we do bring it to the Lord. Praise the Lord, it is never too much for him. It is always too much for us, isn't it? But it is never too much for the Lord Jesus Christ. When incessant people came day after day to the Lord Jesus Christ, we never, ever read him saying, all you people and all your problems, can't you go elsewhere? Can't you find your own solution? Can't you do it yourself? Now, what do we read? We read this of our Lord. He said he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We read these words when Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest as parents as leaders, as members alike, we need to hear those words because it's only in the strength of the Lord that we have any hope. It's only in his ways that we have any comfort, that we can succeed, that we can overcome the attacks of the evil one or of this world or of discouragement or of depression or any of these things that rear their ugly heads. And we need to know that, right? Because like I said, the enemy is seeking our demise. He is seeking our destruction. First Peter 5, 8 says, The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And you know who he's looking for? He's looking for weak and weary and discouraged and isolated Christians. Because those are easy pickings. That is easy prey. And so we need to come and be encouraged and ultimately come and be encouraged in the Lord and his strength and in his comfort. And that is what we read in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1, that Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem once again come. And we have read of them before. We've read of their mockery and their threats. But this time they come with seemingly a, a new approach, a different approach, and innovative approach. We see it in verse 2. They say, come, let us meet together. Let's talk this out. And this sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? And yet, what indication does Nehemiah have that their actions or behavior would be anything of, well, that would be beneficial to him or beneficial to the work or beneficial to the people? Nehemiah's memory is not too short to be reminded of these same people. In chapter 2, were displeased greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And then in chapter 4, when the, when the work actually began, they were actually angry and greatly enraged. And in fact, jeered at the Jews and did, said disparaging things about them. And when the work did continue to progress, they actually went farther and began to threaten them and, and saw others to be in opposition against them. 
And now these are the, the same people that are coming here in chapter 6 saying, hey, you know, let's talk about it. Jesus says you'll know a tree by its fruits. Up to this point, their fruit has been rotten and, and putrid. Why would Nehemiah think that they're going to produce something good now? They had offered no signs of repentance, no signs of change, no asking for forgiveness. And yet now they want peace? No, that is foolishness. Just like with the Munich Agreement that I spoke about at the beginning, Britain and France accepted terms of peace without any change of behavior or the least remorse for Germany's previous invasions. And the same is true here. Their true intentions, well, they show through, despite their words that were coming forth from their mouth. Furthermore, this was essentially, hey, come meet us. Come meet on our turf, and ultimately on our terms. Now, Nehemiah knew this smelled rotten, and he says as much in verse 2, and he says, but they intended to do me harm. See, they were singing the same song, but it was now to a different tune, and nothing good could come from it. And so Nehemiah does not fall for the bait. Instead, he says in verse 3, he says, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He had every reason to believe that they were not telling the truth, that they were lying. But he does not call out their deception here. He doesn't say, oh, you are all liars that don't tell the truth. No, he just simply says, I cannot come. He denies their request. As one commentator put it, they call him out to the plains of, oh no, and Nehemiah says, oh no, I cannot come. Why is that? Because the work is too great. They could not lead it. In fact, they write Nehemiah four times, and four times Nehemiah sends them back the same message. And it seems here that Nehemiah is the the bad guy. It seems that he is being harsh. But I think there is an important lesson for us to learn here. Important lesson for Christians and for the church. A lesson that the church has failed in again and again. That there can be no compromise when it comes to the truth of God or the work of God. You cannot find a middle ground with the enemy. There's no common agreement because we have ultimately nothing in common. And yet, as I said, the churches often wrongly believe that there is. And as a result, they falsely at times think, if, well, if we just give a little here and a little there, well, it'll be a little bit more tolerable to the world. We will be a little bit more acceptable in their eyes. We'll, we'll be a little bit more likable. And so if we just kind of lessen a, a few of those, you know, minor points, some of that truth that seems a little obscure and perhaps somewhat outdated, perhaps if we refresh the scriptures a little, we kind of give the pertinent parts, but kind of hide in the closet those other parts that we really don't want people or the world to read. If we just give it a little makeover, if we, 
ignore these passages that sound a little harsh or a little unpopular or a little bit offensive, then the message will be a little bit more tolerable. It'll be easier to swallow. And then when people hear about those things or read those passages that we don't want them to read, then we will kind of apologize for them or we will try to explain them away or say that they don't really mean what they do. Why would we do that? Why would we think that we are wiser than God? Why would we think that we know better than him? That is the height of foolishness, isn't it? To believe that we are wiser than the all-wise God. That we know what we need better than God knows, the creator and maker of us all. And don't we see that if we give in to these things, if we cave to the cultural pressures, it's not going to make the rest any more tolerable or culturally acceptable. If you compromise on these things, if the church compromises on these things, do you think that they are also going to believe that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only means of eternal life? Of course not. Will they all of a sudden just begin to believe that Jesus was the the God-man, that he rose from the dead and that he ascended into heaven and one day he's coming again to judge the living and the dead at the end of time? No, they will not. If people stumble over these basic things, these things that are evident in nature and evident in general revelation, why would we think that they are all of a sudden going to believe in the supernatural that is given through the special revelation of God and of Christ and of his word? Don't you see that it's all foolishness to them? Isn't this what Paul says? He says of the Jews that preaching Christ crucified was a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, it was folly. But then he goes on to say, but to those that are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Have we forgotten that? If we compromise in one part, we give up the whole message of Christ and of the gospel. It's selling the farm to buy the cow. And in the end, what have you gained? We have not gained anything because you still won't be tolerated or more acceptable unless you come all the way. Just like Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem are saying, they're saying, come out to us. Come out on our turf and come out on our terms and, and then you will have peace. Now that is a losing proposition for the very beginning. It is false peace. It is a false truth. As Winston Churchill once said, you cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. When we compromise the truth, we are already in the throes of defeat. There is no recovery. And so Paul, again, in 2 Corinthians 6, says this, for what partnership has righteousness with lawliness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? These are all rhetorical questions because the answer is obviously there is no 
middle ground. There is no partnership. There is no fellowship. There is no accord. There is no portion. There is no agreement because he goes on to say, we are the temple of the living God. He says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separated from them, says the Lord. But before we begin to think that evil is just out there somewhere, as if the enemy is only external, we must realize, no, the enemy is also within, isn't it? As the saying goes, I've met the enemy and he is me. When we think of the idea of compromising, we must recognize that there is much compromise in me and in you. That we often cave into the temptations of life, into the lusts of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the pride of life. We often lie to ourselves, that we are our own greatest liars and say things like, well, this is probably okay or this won't be a problem or this isn't a big deal or I'm justified in doing it or everyone is doing it. Surely not everyone can be all wrong or God understands. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He'll forgive me if I do this or I go that way. Oh, there is much. Benedict Arnold in each and every one of us, isn't there? There's much compromise. And yet, once again, we must say the same truth, that there is no middle ground. There is no false peace. Because that false peace will ultimately destroy you and destroy me. John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That is why we need to take all things captive and obedient to Christ under his authority and under his dominion and not our own. And so there's several points of application that I want to make this morning from this beginning of this passage. And the first is this, if you're called to be Christ, then you're called to be different. And you got to be okay with that. Because you're called to be holy. You're called to a different standard. And you might say, well, pastor, that, that sounds a little bit legalistic. And if you're doing it just to appear holy to others, then probably it is. But if you do it because you want to be devoted to Christ, then you want to have every part of your life under his dominion, under his lordship. And that is what each and every one of us is called to do. In the waters of, of baptism, that Lord willing, we will see again next week. What are we saying? We are saying that we are marked out, that God calls us his own. He puts his name upon us. He says that you belong to me. Christ has called us his own. He has bought us with his own precious blood. And that is why we confess in our confession of faith that I am not my own. I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So hear what we are saying. We're saying that my body is not my own. 
Do you hear that? Young people, and those of you that are single, and really all of us, that means sexually I cannot do whatever I want to do. Only what Christ wants and he commands. It is saying my mind is not my own. I cannot fill it with trash and thoughts and teachings and entertainments that is contrary to the truth of God and think that does not affect me, think that that does somehow not affect my spiritual sanctification or my thoughts of God or the ways of holiness. My soul is not my own. Again, I've been bought with the precious blood of Christ and therefore my heart, my devotion, my life, my all is given to him and to his cause. It is all for Christ. There is no longer self. There's no longer Christ and me. No, it is Christ and me together, unified. I've been crucified with Christ. In the life I live, I no longer live in the flesh, but for Christ my God. And so the call is that which is contrary to the ways of God, those things that are trying to pull you down, the things that are trying to pull you off the straight and narrow. We need to say, much like Nehemiah's, and say, I cannot come down. I've been called to a great work. I've been called to a different work. I've called to a different purpose. I cannot be distracted from it. I know how they'll try, just like they tried with Nehemiah four times. Come on, Nehemiah, no. Come on, you can do it, no. Please, no. Pretty please, no. When the call to compromise any form comes, that is the word that we ought to use, no. The ways of the world, no. The ways of the flesh, no. The ways of the evil one, no. Only the way of Christ. That is what I'm called to. And so second, we must be willing to ask this question, how far are we willing to go, both individually and as a church, without compromising, without compromising. Not in a harsh, we are better than the rest of the world attitude, but in devotion to Christ, in love for Christ and his truth. And that, that, that question needs to be asked now, not when the compromise is before us. And I believe those questions need to be asked before us in increasing measure. Because if I'm honest with you, pastorally, I'm afraid that the church in America is not ready. And that this next generation is not ready. And that there are many that are falling out already. And if I can speak bluntly, the kettle hasn't even gotten warm yet. And so when things are not popular or we are called out because of Christ, or we are called names, or we face persecution, will we, will we bow under the pressure? Will we say, that, that cost is too great? I can't follow. That cross is too heavy. Beloved, is our loyalty, is our devotion that weak? Is our love for Christ that cold? Listen, I, I don't hope for opposition. I don't. I don't desire it. If anything, in, in the flesh, I'm a coward. 
and you are probably as well. But I pray for courage. I pray for courage in myself, and I pray for courage in you, because I think it's coming. The, the ways that we've had it in the past will not be the ways of the future. But there will no doubt be persecution, and perhaps even imprisonment, and maybe even death. We need to prepare now. We need to ask, what is the level of commitment? And where are we willing to compromise? I hope that there is no compromise in us. But that the Lord would find us faithful to the very end. The third, I want to end on this. What do we do when there is compromise? When we give in to the sins of the flesh, or the ways of the world, or areas of morality, or when we believe the lies and the philosophies of this world, well, we do what the scripture tells us to do. We bring it to light. We confess it. We ask for forgiveness. And then we repent. And we need to be always repenting. And we do not carry on in that way because ultimately we're going in the opposite direction. 180 degrees from the rest of the world. But this is the good news. And I want us to finish on this, that we have a God who is compassionate and gracious, and slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, that loves to forgive sinners. And so if that is you, and let's be honest, that is all of us, and this morning, come to Christ. Come to Christ if it's the first time, or if it's the thousandth time. Come to Christ and receive his forgiveness. Let us go forth in new obedience to the call of Christ, to the righteousness that he has called us to, to building up his kingdom as servants of him. And may there be no compromise in us because we belong to him, our faithful Savior, body and soul, in heart and in life and even in death. Well, after Germany invaded Poland, it was evident that all of Europe and ultimately the world was being plunged into war. It was then that the Prime Minister of England, then Winston Churchill, gave this speech, which was a much different tone than his predecessor. He said, we shall go to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. To that end, that is the fight that we are called to as well not against ultimately flesh and blood, but for the cause of Christ and for his kingdom. We fight against the flesh. We fight against the world and the devil. And let it be known and let it be said, we shall never surrender. So help us, God. Let us pray. Our gracious God, We say those words with fear and trepidation. 
for we know our flesh. We know our weaknesses. We know the ways that we have turned our backs on you so often. And yet, what is even more amazing, Lord, you have called us again and again and again to come unto you. Come unto you for forgiveness. Come unto you for rest. Come unto you for the the way of truth and the way of life. And so we do again, Lord. We come and bow the knee before you and ask that you would grant to us your spirit, grant to us your means. Would we be committed, O Lord, to what you have given to us? May we recognize how precious your spirit and your word and your church truly is. May we be strengthened in and through all of those means this morning. May we go forth, Lord, fortified in our faith, fortified in our love and our devotion and our affection for you. May we once again grab each other arm by arm and say, you are my brother, you are my sister. I need you. Lord, we cannot do it alone, and you don't ask us to do it alone. You have given us everything that we need. Lord, would you help us? Would you strengthen us for the fight ahead? And Lord, again, it's not against flesh and blood and is not ultimately against the the people of this world. Lord, we know it's against the, the principalities and the powers. And so, Lord, let us not fall prey to that destruction and to that demise. But give us your peace, give us your way, give us your strength, O Lord, and help us ultimately and always to be faithful to you as we follow in your way and the ways of those that have gone on before us. So help us, we pray this in Christ's name.